This is Tara Nicole Nelson, author of The Transformational Consumer, Fuel a Lifelong Love Affair with Your Customers by Helping Them Get Healthier, Wealthier, and Wiser. And you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if you're listening to the show right now and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery, please hop on Twitter and tell us where in the world you're listening from. My Twitter handle is marketingbook. Today, we welcome Tara Nicole Nelson to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her new book, The Transformational Consumer, Fuel a Lifelong Love Affair with Your Customers by Helping Them Get Healthier, Wealthier, and Wiser. Tara Nicole Nelson is the founder and CEO of Transformational Consumer Insights. She is the former vice president of marketing for MyFitnessPal, now part of Under Armour. And interesting fact, she is a recovering lawyer. She has a law degree from the University of California at Berkeley. Tara, congratulations on the Transformational Consumer and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Ah, thanks so much, Douglas. It's exciting to be here. So my introduction was a bit short, but you have an extremely interesting, circuitous background. And you say that you have been working on this book since you were nine years old. Can you take us back to maybe your ninth year and talk a little bit more and (laughs) fill in some of the gaps on your bio, which are very important to the development of this book? Yes, 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 yes. So when I was nine, my parents owned a fitness and racket club. And I was a probably overly curious, overly nosy little kid. So I sat there and kind of watched people. Like I loved to work out Jane Fonda style in the dance aerobics classes. Um, My friends remind me that this means my life has come full circle since I get to work out a lot wearing, you know, great gear with middle-aged women now, but I actually am one of them now. I was nine then and they were in their 40s. And I would just kind of watch the ebb and flow of people in and out. And I would watch how people were there all the time until they weren't. And I would, you know, listen to how much people loved the clothes and the food and the place that they felt like were making them healthier and how, you know, sort of their habits and lifestyles would evolve and include these things or not. Then when I was a little bit older, I had a bunch of relatives that sort of had chronic lifestyle diseases. And I started curiously like reading about that kind of thing. Like it, it, I think it made me feel very helpless. And I ended up reading very young. I read a book by Deepak Chopra called Quantum Healing, where he introduced some concepts like about how much your mindset and your own behavior controls health at a cellular level. And that was a really revolutionary thing for a a kid that age to realize how much control we actually do have over our own sort of state of health. And then, you know, so I read that when I was like 14. And from the time I was 16 for the next maybe 10 years, I just had a crazy set of kind of awesome, kind of miraculous, kind of distressing at times, life circumstances. I was a teenage mom. I had my son when I was 17 years old. I started college when I was 16 years old and pregnant with him. I graduated with bachelor's and master's degrees in psychology and then ended up moving from the Central Valley of California to Berkeley to go to law school, still while I was very young. 
And when I got out of law school, I represented people who were sued civilly and charged criminally for the same behavior, including a bunch of what I just think of as bad Apple real estate agents. And out of my frustration with how sort of lackadaisically these people were treating their clients' transactions, and out of my frustration with the fact that they were making so much more money than I was <laughs> as a lawyer, <laughs> right. I actually quit my job as a lawyer and started selling real estate and started sort of spotting patterns in what people were really trying to make happen out of their real estate transactions, which was lifestyle design and changing their relationships and changing their finances and changing their careers and changing the sort of wellness of their families all through this one transaction. And I started noticing how poor they were at decision-making in alignment with that, with their objectives and vision for lifestyle design. So I took what I knew as a psychologist about curriculum design and actually developed this flow chart of a real estate transaction that was sort of how to, but also what to expect and mindset management. And I made everyone walk through that with me before we could get in the car and look at houses. And it really changed the way people were experiencing their transactions and leveled up their decision making in the course of it. And ultimately, I, I converted that curriculum into a seminar and converted that seminar into a book that I wrote and self-published just kind of at the time as like a business card for my real estate business. But I did a little really raggedy round of PR for that. And I got this hit in the New York Times. And one day I got a call from HGTV saying that they had my book and they, they wanted to license the content of the book as seed content for a website they were starting up on real estate and decision-making for consumers. And they hired me as a digital content marketing consultant to break this book up into you know, articles and videos, and they media trained me and they put me on the PR circuit. And I just had this really incredibly powerful primer in how to use all these levers, how to use data, how to use, you know, search trends, how to use customer questions and the patterns that I had been spotting in the car and content and PR and spokespeople to drive the business results of a digital property. And this was, you know, 12 years ago now. So this was before people called content marketing a thing. So I left there and did, you know, I worked for them for a few years. I left there and worked for Trulia.com, the real estate search engine in a very similar capacity. I left there and worked at a PR agency in San Francisco representing all sorts of tech companies in every industry, but still using digital and content and PR and spokespeople to drive their business results. I left there and started my own consulting firm, and one of my clients ended up becoming my fitness pal. And after probably nine days of working with them as a consultant, I started getting a job offer from them as, as their chief marketer. And we were able to just use sort of the, the transformational consumer framework, which we will talk about more, and what I had learned from all of these businesses I'd worked with about how to create very problem-solution-oriented content and how to understand your customer's journey and, and unlock progress along your customer's journey to drive the results of a business. So we grew that company from like 45 million customers to a hundred and some million in a two-year period of time and were ultimately acquired by Under Armour at the end of that, which freed me up to come write this book. Okay, good. And just so the listener knows, yesterday when I worked out after work, I did wear all Under Armour gear just in preparation for, for this interview. Did so, you get in the, in the zone? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. So that story in itself was so interesting to me because it talks about a number of things. One of them is, like I said, the circuitous nature of everyone's career, and it's only going to get more so, the power of content 
And yes. also the power of just following your curiosity and fascination, because now looking back and reading your book, it all made perfect sense. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure yes. at the time your friends yes. and family must have been saying, Tara, come on, you... <laughs> You gotta oh, I think out. my parents still don't quite understand what I do for a living. Every once in a while, my mom will be like, how do you pay the mortgage? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they still don't understand. But like this, that's the beauty of the time that we live in. I mean, uh, so the time that we live in is, you know, crazy and, and upheaval for, for some things. But the fact is that energy moves fast. Technology empowers things to happen that, you know, to b- whole businesses, whole industries to exist that didn't before. Like what I do for a living in terms of, you know, a- a- think of content marketing, digital marketing, engagement marketing, those things did not exist as professions in the way they do now when I was in school. I couldn't have studied them if I wanted to because they didn't really exist. Smartphones exactly. didn't really exist <laughs> back then. So like that opens up things, that opens up a lot of career possibilities for marketers, for entrepreneurs. And I think in particular, it creates the zeitgeist in which the transformational consumer is becoming now this enormous sort of I'll say not really super organized, but movement. It's precisely because of the era of digital content that people now believe that they can change anything that they want about their lives and know that that information should be accessible, that information, inspiration, tools for changing their behavior, all of that stuff should be you know, accessible with a couple of clicks in a way that it wasn't a generation or two ago. But, you know, the secret sort of head fake message underlying the idea of the transformational consumer is really like a rallying cry to leaders and marketers and entrepreneurs and executives that, hey, you can actually use your career in tech or in CPG or in whatever you're doing to lift people up, to make the world better, to make people's lives better. And you can do that more powerfully now in this era of digital and content than you ever could have before and more quickly uh, now could have before. And I want to get much further into that. But Tara, I I read your book. And so I feel like I know you. And as a result, I'm going to make a confession here. (laughs) (laughs) When I very first, uh, the book arrived, actually, your publicist sent an electronic version of it. I saw the title and I'm, I judged a book by its cover. I'm I'm afraid. And you know why? Because I'm human, doggone it. I saw it and I thought, oh, it's a book about how to market, you know, healthy lifestyle or financial things. Because again, the title of the book, this is what I saw, was, mm-hmm. you know, Transformational Consumer, Fuel a Lifelong Love Affair with Your Customers by Helping Them Get Healthier, Wealthier, and Wiser. And just so the listener understands, this is definitely not a book about <laughs> how to market mm-hmm. health care or financial products. You explain it in the beginning. And after I read it, it's I just thought it made it made such perfect sense. Let me just read one excerpt from the from the prologue, uh, and then we'll go on. What I've seen time after time is that billions of people worldwide are coming to the marketplace specifically looking for the products and services and brands that can help them live healthier, wealthier, and wiser lives. I've seen that they become deeply devoted repeat customers of the companies that help them to do this more effectively, easily, beautifully or joyously than they could do it on their own. So when you talked about working with these real estate clients, one of the takeaways I had was they're not just buying a house. They were changing their lives. That's right. 
That's right. They were changing their lives. There is a way in which what the transformational consumer framework is about is actually not even about the customer. It's about shifting our worldview, right? As business people, it's about shifting from focusing on our products and what we sell and what we do to shifting on the humanity of the people we serve, whoever those people are, and shifting to a, like a laser beam focus on that. And so the we have to start to think about healthier, wealthier, and wiser in the same way that our people, the people we serve do. And that is a, it's very broadly, the way they think about them is broadly. So people who are trying to buy a house are trying to change their relationship to money often. Some of them want to start a business and need space for that, or they want, they have a vision for their career and that intersects mightily with, you know, the financial commitments that they make to their mortgage. Many, many of those people want to make, they want to be wise stewards of the resources they have. Yeah. And that ties in nicely with wanting to be informed consumers the way in the past the customer might have gone to the seller right away. Now they're doing lots and lots of research and really don't want to engage with the seller until they really feel like they're wiser. That's right. And, you know, what I think is really interesting, a trend that I'm seeing right now in sort of the national political and cultural climate is that people really want to be everyday activists, right? Part of being wiser is they want to use their dollars to vote for companies that sort of share their worldview and values, even on objects that don't have to do specifically with the thing that they're selling. So healthier, wealthier, I, I think you saw that with the whole sort of Uber and Lyft thing that happened after, you know, the initial executive orders of this administration. So like healthier, wealthier and wiser is so much broader than health, personal finance and right. education. The, after right? just a couple like, pages, I got it. It was sort of like, oh, now I see. Now, you say that the number one limiting factor of almost every business is neither truth nor the competition. What is the number one limiting factor? As far as I've seen, and I've seen a lot, the number one limiting factor on every company in every sector is disengagement. Disengagement. So like, I believe that any company that engages two audiences consistently will thrive. And those audiences are their customers and their employees. And there are lots of data points out there that show that most businesses are doing a very poor job of engaging both of those audiences. <laughs> yes. I won't even go into the like direness of the stats, but you know, it's most people who are in business, you know, would have the reaction you just had, which is like, hey, yeah, that's actually true. Well, and that explains why there have been like eight or 10 books on this show about how to engineer a better customer experience. Yes. It's just there's yes. not this understanding of it. Like if you can get people to care about what you're selling and to buy it or share about it or engage with your content over and over again, you're in good shape. It's not the same though with growth. And that's the thing that I see companies fixating on is how can we get new customers? How can we get new people in the funnel? How can we grow our social media channels? My argument is, you can spend, you can buy growth, you can growth hack, you can brand market, you can, you know, digital market your way into new people in the funnel. But if they are disengaged, once they get there, that is a really unsustainable business model, right? Then you really quickly get into a situation where you're paying more to acquire users than those users are worth in terms of customer lifetime value to your organization. And that you can only do so long. And the flip side is true. Like it, you could grow your number of people in the funnel 
more slowly and have those people be just in love with your brand in love with your content and love with your product and good things happen. That is actually the situation my fitness pal had. It did no paid marketing. Even the years before I came in, they were doing no paid marketing and had grown to 45 million customers primarily because the product, it just was so effective for the people that used it at solving an intractable problem that people loved it. And they told everyone they knew about it. My argument is if you focus on engagement and focus on, you know, just making sure that your product serve th- serves things that people already care about, you're in good shape. So explain for the listener what a transformational consumer is. What are, what are some of the key things that a transformational consumer has? Transformational consumers are, they're really a group of people that see all of life as a series of projects to change their own behavior for the healthier, wealthier, and wiser. They're people who believe that they can change anything about their lives. They know that they're getting control over their own habits and behaviors is sort of the linchpin to making any life change they want to make. And they know that behavior change is possible, but that it's hard. So they're constantly out there in the marketplace online looking for products and content and services that can help them make these hard changes. Because of that, they tend to be early adopters of you know, products that can help them hit their goals. They experiment with a lot of things. They tend to also be highly influential on the buying behavior of the people around them because their kind of personal brands in their circle of their sphere of influence tends to be like, oh, that's the chick who's always, you know, making a goal, always studying a thing, always looking to get a certification. She always has a business on the side or she's always trying out, you know, some new fitness or or health thing. People know that about them. So they're constantly asking them for recommendations. When they find a brand or a product that really unlocks new possibilities for their lives in, in these areas, they become sort of devotedly loyal. They will use it over and over again. They will tell everyone they know about it. And, you know, we did a research project in the course of doing this book and found that about 50% of American consumers actually are transformational consumers. That blew me away. I was not expecting that. It blew me away. (laughs) I thought, oh, this is a niche. This is 15%. Yes, I was amazed. I was amazed. It's not a niche. Oh, boy. And then I, as I read more, I was like, oh, of course, of course. And I realized that I'm one and my wife is one. Oh. I mean, I like to joke, if you've been vegan and paleo at different times of your life, you're probably a transformational consumer. But most entrepreneurs are, or people who listen to podcasts trying to get better at their businesses or careers, people who read business books, most of those people are transformational right. consumers. We're talking about you, listener. That's right. <laughs> so let's go just a couple of questions I really wanted to ask you. Okay, well, let's also explain what is a transformational product, just to make clear that we're not talking about vitamins and mutual funds here. No, I mean, vitamins and mutual funds, sure, they qualify, but lots of other things do too. What I talk about in the book a lot is prioritizing the project of understanding your audience's sort of journey or real world path from having the problem that your company exists to solve to no longer having that problem. And all of these journeys, think about any goal that you've ever tried to achieve, all of those journeys have places and things that get people stuck and things that get people unstuck or help them make progress. Transformer companies, transformational companies are just the businesses that sort of make their business to remove pain points, sticking points, resistance, 
you know, failure points from their customers' journeys and companies that make it easier for people to make progress toward their goals on these aspirations. So like Airbnb can be a transformational, is a transformational company for both its hosts and its guests to the extent that guests are trying to have sort of an out-of-the-box, more personally sort of fulfilling travel experience and travel the world to become better citizens of the world than they would have in like a corporate sort of hotel. They help further that in a number of ways. And to the extent that their hosts are actually trying to leverage the real estate resources that they have access to and be good stewards of them and, you know, sort of have side income or side money, that is an actual way in which Airbnb triggers transformation for another audience of it. There are it, like all kinds of business, all kinds of products and businesses. Soap is an example that I use a lot because soap, many soap purchases are not transformational. People just want to buy soap to be clean. But in the developing countries where hand washing is not a cultural norm, purchases of soap are very transformational. People make a relatively large investment to buy these products in the very intentional effort to save their families' lives from disease. And even in the developed world, oftentimes people who are choosing non-toxic chemical-free soap, that is a transformational purchase when they're making that choice expressly over a soap that is more conventionally made. So here's where my mind raced after reading the book. <laughs> I started having a hard time thinking of things that couldn't be. So for example, we've been in our house for 20 years and it's full of clutter and we've decided, you know, it's time to really kind of, the kids are off in college now and let's you know, continue the transformation. I had to go to Lowe's, the hardware store for those folks outside the US, and I had to buy a particular screwdriver that was very long. Why? Because that's what was needed to dismantle a piece of broken exercise equipment on the third floor, which was the first step towards cleaning out that whole mm -hmm. attic. And I just thought a screwdriver can be a transformational product. It can. I mean, it's really all about the intention yeah. with which the purchase, the thing is bought. Now, there are some things that I say like would strain credibility. Garbage bags, it would strain credibility. It, it could be, right? In the same decluttering project. You and could that's be exactly what I thought bags. when I was right. I'm taking issue mm -hmm. with the author here. I bought yes. <laughs> a bunch of contractor bags and they're all getting filled up with, you know, clutter and garbage. So, yes. But like in terms of like what the brand itself should be doing with their primary sort of messaging and focus, sure, actually, maybe it's a good idea for a garbage glad or some garbage bag brand to be focused on a blogger influencer campaign around decluttering or to hook up with what Marie Kondo, right? <laughs> right? Who does the decluttering. Oh, yes. I read that book. She won't be on the yeah. podcast though. Everybody read that book. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, actually that's not a bad strategy. What I do do try to do though, is like insert ourselves in the minds of, of our customers. So like most alcohol brands should probably not be marketing under like a health messaging or they risk getting called out or short, short term you know, tobacco transformation brands. <laughs> tobacco brands firearms so i always think of atf like the department of alcohol tobacco and firearms okay right atf right. brands should probably consider not marketing transformationally because it will strain credibility and people will call them out but for the most part there are transform it's all about 
what the customer's intention is when they buy the product. And yes, almost very, very many products. You know, wealth includes things like career development, productivity, time management, every operating system that has ever been created for a computing device. Lots of digital things that you don't think of as like health or, or financial definitely qualify to the point where like the primary reason people are using them is to to achieve these goals. Yeah, you know, I started to think about there are so many B2B things that are very much about transformation, at least with us, you know, we've got this marketing agency and we're helping these companies deal with, you know, the change in marketing and doing a lot of the kind of things that you've discovered along the way. And for them, it's a big change. And it, it you know, we might be talking about generating leads or some sort of feature or benefit, but really, I think we're going to start zeroing in even more on transformation of their company because that is really what the the boss wants. So thank you. But almost more importantly, that's what the employees want too. I mean, Slack is an example that I use in the book. Slack is really... And they have been crystal clear on this from the beginning. Like what they do is help unlock collaboration they help unlock sort of some efficiencies, which allow people to do other things they want to do in their lives and do great work, be great at what they do. Slack has been very clear from the beginning that they didn't want to just, you know, talk about themselves as a group chat software, right? Because that just is so limited in the number of people who think that they're looking for that. But everyone wants to be productive. Everybody wants to collaborate more efficiently and more and have more fun in their work and be more fulfilled and, you know, achieve more of their potential at work. So Slack has been a a very good, vivid example of a B2B company that is very clear that they are a transformational business. So the Slack's a good example of where they were really talking about more the problem than than the product. And that was a big part of the book for me. Can you explain the difference between a product first and a problem-first company? Well, so this is where I feel extraordinarily qualified (laughs) because I've worked in Silicon Valley for most of my career. And here in the Valley, you know, most founders and investors and companies are very technical. They're engineers. And they tend to lead with, here's what kind of cool things we can build. Then let's try to figure out how to sell them and market them to people. That is a product-first viewpoint. A company that's that includes its product in the name of the business, a company that leads with all of the marketing with, here's what our product does. We are the biggest or the best at it. We have sold the most of it. That is a very product first worldview. And you hear the word we a lot. Yes, that's right. We versus you or versus, you know, our customers. And then you see other companies that really spend all of their company conversations are talking about the pe- the real world people who actually need to solve a problem and their company only exists basically to solve that problem. That is a problem first company. And what I think people miss, it's not just a set of, it's not just about values, right? Like that is just a good shift of values to make for most companies to focus more on the customer than it is to focus on product. That is true. It's not just about values. The thing that it does when you shift from product first to to problem first is that you open up a whole new lens for understanding how you can innovate to and connect with your customer, because then you have to necessarily understand your customer's real real world experience of the problem, understand their natural language that they use around the problem, you would be shocked and dismayed 
at the big disconnect that I often see between the way customers talk about the subject matter of a business and the way the company talks about it. Oh, yeah, we're talking Mars and Venus here. Right. So that shift is about it's about even what product features you build. I see a lot of product first companies falling into the thing where they all they they spend a lot of their efforts tracking what other providers of similar products are doing and doing me too innovation, me too product launches, cutting prices, commoditizing what they sell to compete with those other products. That's sort of an outgrowth of the product first viewpoint. When you're a problem first company, all you're doing is thinking about what are the things that get between my customer and their goals and what are the different ways that we can help trigger progress and remove those things from that path. It's just a very different way to look at why you exist. Well, and it's also where the money is with these companies that are solving the problems rather than just generating the product. And you know what else it reminded me of was the Simon Sinek. Yes. Start with why, whereas like uh, we sell computers, do you want to buy one versus we help people express themselves. We also sell computers. (laughs) And here's like the secret happy accident of that whole shift is that people, your employees, employees by and large are tired of working on just like making things that make a big company more money, right? If that's the game that you're in, it's very hard to keep employees engaged. It's very hard to retain them. It gets to be very expensive to to recruit them. If you are in the business of solving a higher scale human problem, unlocking new possibilities for people, well, like lots of people want to work on that. People want to work on stuff that's bigger than them or bigger than just a brand or a product that allows them to like, you know, think about how they can lift someone up or solve a, a real life problem. There was one part, another part of this page five here, where you said nearly 70% of employees, the people we pay to be engaged, meaning our employees, rank somewhere between mildly disinterested and actively toxically hateful when it comes to their employer and their work. Isn't that wild? It made me think of the movie I mean, Office Space. <laughs> it makes me think of a bunch of movies, horrible bosses. <laughs> comes yeah. To and like, there's one of my favorite, I mean, you know, the book is actually a very, it's like me. It's a good mix of like really serious and really actionable and like, Hey guys, let's do this and change the world. And also like funny stories and stuff from my career. But there is one of my favorite quotes in the book is that quote in the end, in the rethink your culture section from Drew Carey, where he says like, Hey, you hate your job. There's a support group for that. It's called everybody. And we meet at the bar, right? right? Like, I think there's like an issue that we all think it's so normal. It has totally been normalized to have a whole team, a whole company of totally disengaged employees. And it does not have to be that way. I I actually think in most of the companies that I've worked in internally, which is, you know, I've, I've worked a lot on the agency side or as a consultant, but certainly at Trulia and certainly at MyFitnessPal, people were like, die hard devoted. I mean, at my fitness pal, we would come back from vacation and breathe a sigh of relief to be back at work after vacation. That's, I understand that that's crazy, (laughs) but like, that's, that's how it is when you're working on something that's bigger than you and you're making progress and all the teams are really committed to it. And your C-suite is really committed to users, customers, 
people, the people you serve being successful, that is fun to come to work do every day. Let's talk just briefly about customer journey. You know, my sense is that most companies don't know as much about their customers as they think they do. And that's a big part of marketing the transformational consumer. What are some of the best practices for for trying to better understand the customer's journey? And just a hint to the listener, their journey doesn't start when they first contact you as a customer. That's right. That's right. So I say this a lot when I'm, you know, meeting with and talking with companies. I think that people get customer journey mapping and customer life cycle mapping mixed up a lot. So your customer's life cycle with your brand, with your own channels, that begins when they first come into contact with you. And it's a worthy, it's it's a worthwhile endeavor to understand what that flow looks like. So you can see where people churn out. You can see what it's not engaging about your brand or your user experience. But your customer's journey is actually their real life in their real lives, where their journey of trying to solve the problem you exist starts and ends. And so the only way you can possibly know what that looks like is to get out of your office and start meeting with and talking with and observing the real world behaviors of your, you know, audiences and your potential. So for example, for us at MyFitnessPal, that meant going out of San Francisco to cities that are not necessarily, you know, tech cities. Where you there didn't do all your focus building. group work right in San Francisco? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you joked about well, that in the originally, book. Originally, yeah, the company had done that originally, and I was like, well, that was fun, so let's go talk to some real people. Yeah, that, that's representative <laughs> of, the, of the entire U.S. <laughs> of, like, no one. And, you know, that's, that's just an artifact of they didn't, they hadn't had a marketing team up to then, so they didn't really have a voice in the company until I came for, you know, like, let's talk to some real people. So we went out and we started talking to real people. We, there's like a little bit where you have to talk to people and just ask them questions and ask them broad questions to get a picture for what their actual experience of trying to solve the problem of, for us, moving from living an unhealthy life to living a healthier life. So we want, you want to ask just broad questions to get help from people what their experience has been. You want to talk to people at all stages of that process. So we talked to people who weighed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds and had struggled with weight forever. We talked with CrossFitters who, you know, are extremely fit and, you know, really with broken legs, we're still figuring out how to work out. So you have to talk to people at all stages. You have to begin to identify their feelings, behaviors, wants, and needs at every stage. You have to start to inventory where they get stuck at every stage and where they get unstuck, what gets people unstuck what research questions they have at what stages, where did they go to do that research online and off? And then what natural language patterns do they use as they are trying to think about and solve the problem that you exist to solve? So doing real world customer research, doing online listening. So, I mean, outside of your brand channels, like Go to the Reddit forums relevant to your subject matter and just see what words people use when, you know, they're not, you're not asking them. But we also really, I encourage people to, to do more than just asking people questions in the real world. You've got to also observe their behavior in the real world because there will always be differences between what people say they do and want and what people actually do and want. Oh, so true. Yeah. So let's say, let me ask you two other questions. One is, let's talk about what you call the rules of engagement. And we're not talking about the military here. Share with us some of the principles that every 
transformational content strategy has. And don't hold back on some of the things that so many companies are getting wrong. Oh, okay. So <laughs> the, the thing, the biggest thing that I think people probably get wrong is that they're spending a lot of time publishing really beautiful, heady stories, stories and images about their brand versus trying to create content that really solves problems for their customers along their actual journeys. Amen. So that's biggest like sort of overarching thing is like you can tell all the beautiful stories about about your brand that you want. But if you actually want people to click on it and read it and come back to it time and time and time again, you'll shift to creating content that is of high value to people who are trying to solve the problem that that you exist to solve. So and, and in the book you even said, don't take my word for it, look at your analytics. Look what they're reading. Look at your analytics. <laughs> right. I mean, and listen at every company that I've ever run a content program for, you do have to do product launch announcements, right? You do have to yeah. publish the occasion thing that's just an announcement about your company, but you'll see people don't open it. People don't click on it. People don't read it or watch it. Mom so like, might not even read it. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, is people want to fight reality <laughs> and right. like that it seems to be a foolhardy endeavor. And this is where I think some of my non-traditional marketing background comes in. Like my original marketing gig was like, I'm a real estate broker at the height of the real estate recession, and HGTV is going to pay me a lot of money the more results I can get. So I tend to have a relatively laser beam focused approach to like things that work. I don't just want to do, I don't ever really just do things because it's the thing that you're supposed to do. Right. Check the box um, marketing. Right. Yeah. I'm not into that. Yeah. <laughs> so Nobody has time for that. Well, and also you actually wanted results. So you probably had slightly more of a CEO approach, a revenue approach versus- I think uh, a lot more of a CEO approach. And that's even now, I you know I get asked sometimes, like, what kind of marketer are you? Are you a brand marketer, digital marketer, content marketer? And I just say I'm a strategic business leader and I, I use marketing, I pull marketing levers to achieve the results that I need to achieve. Now, that said, I also only work on brands that I feel like are impacting people's lives in these ways. So that's just, uh, you didn't ask me, but I'll say, I'll give it, I'll give it anyway. Well, I read that in the book. Yeah. And the the number one piece of advice I give to marketers, I see, I meet with a lot of marketers, like when I'm speaking and stuff and they're like, oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm working on this product and it's kind of lame. They're like, don't market stuff you don't believe in. Really just don't. It's, there are so many cool companies out there trying to do cool things that lift people's lives up in all kinds of ways and B2B and enterprise and everything like don't work on stuff that you don't believe in because if you can't get excited about it how are you going to get everybody else excited about you're not it? you're not you're not so what what are the right and wrong ways that companies should think about their competition yes you know i i my argument is that your competition is never another company or another product really if you Almost, I mean, I think somebody in the company has to like kind of know what's going on in (laughs) the industry, but like one or two people can do that. One or two, you know, like your COO is probably all over that CEO. Well, and the CEO is supposed to be. And, probably, and they should, right. and like even the CMO, right? Like should yeah. at least be aware. And the sales, the, the sales guys will tell you, the sales folks will. They'll know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause they'll, they'll be hearing about it. Right. But like, and they need to be able to, you know, position and deposition against. I think 
what I see happen is when product teams and when marketing teams at the execution level are are being influenced by their higher ups to overfocus on another company or another product, what you see is a lot of me too. You see a lot of products like sort of spring up, features spring up that are really just trying to keep up with, you know, the Joneses company. And consumers can see through that in a heartbeat. What I think one of our big advantages was at my fitness hall in particular was that the CEO from the time that company was started was just very fixated on customers being successful. So everything was kind of being successful in their lives, right? Not even just in, in their health goals, not just with our product. Because if all you're focused at is their interaction with your product, then you're kind of like missing a whole bunch of places where you could innovate and bring things to the market that solve problems that people will adopt in mass that no, no one is doing right now that don't exist yet, right? So we saw as our competition, any single obstacle that got between our customers and success. So like I joke, I used to joke all the time about how our chief competition is biology. It's the fact that like fat and sugar are delicious. It's the fact that junk food is very aggressively and expensively marketed and it's ubiquitous. You cannot get, I mean, I'm going to wager that when you were at Lowe's buying those garbage bags, you probably had to pass some Snickers on the way out of the, <laughs> out of the, yeah, I'm out. sure I did. Oh, and there's a hot dog stand out there. Yeah, I'm sure. Right. It was a- like that stuff doesn't even have anything to do with home improvement and you have to pass it to get out of the home improvement store. So that is the kind of thing that we saw as bigger competition for us because it's it's obstacles to our customers. So then that created all sorts of new insights for like, what can we do to help solve those problems? Yeah. Um, you know what this reminds that, me of also, the, the whole, so much of the premise of the book is the famous Harvard Business Review article by Theodore Levitt, Marketing Myopia. And that's where he talks about companies don't really understand, they don't understand what the business is they're in the problem of solving. So he talked about the railroads 100 years ago or whatever. They thought they were in the railroad business. They didn't understand that they were in the business of getting stuff from point A to point B. I need a- so when it came to shipping or air transport or highways, all that sort of thing, they, com- they completely missed it. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand what problem they were solving. That's right. And I think, I think, you know, the best example I know of this in really recent times is Netflix. I feel that Netflix has been very clear that they are in the business of entertaining people. And that allowed them to shift from DVDs to streaming. It has allowed them to shift streaming to content. It just, they're really clear, like, our business is to deliver entertainment to people. And we'll do that however you know, however we need to at any given time. Yeah, that's a good example. That's a good example. So Tara, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? You know, I would hope it would be to focus on the, uh, like the undying humanity, the human wants and needs and aspirations of their people, their customers, the people who they serve, and get out of the business of fixating on, you know, what are we supposed to post on Snapchat today <laughs> or whatever the new, you know, when I go into a meeting with the CEO and I'm, I'm hearing him ask me what they should post to Twitter, I'm like, man, we are having like the wrong level of conversation. Um, there's always going to be a new medium. There's always going to be a new channel focusing on like solving people's real undying human problems and, and dreams. That's where the love is at. That's where the money's at. Well said. What books have inspired your work and career? The book that I probably you mentioned one, Deepak Chopra. Which one? 
Oh, I like I love that book. But the in terms of the way that I operate as a leader, I would say the book Necessary Endings by Henry Cloud changed everything for me. It <laughs> changed the trajectory of my career. The book is largely about how in any like sort of how to identify and skillfully end business projects, initiatives, relationships, bad patterns, and how to stay sort of an ever expansive motion in your life and in your career. And it just kind of normalizes and gives you some skills around spotting when things aren't working or are even working, but kind of at a mediocre level and learning how to sort of metabolize them, take in what serves you, release the rest memorialize it as needed with a team and move forward and reinvest those resources into the things that matter the most. So that is the book I recommend the very, very most. I have not heard of that book. It has never been mentioned on this show. You just added to my reading list. Thanks. (laughs) I will tell you, I've read probably 12 or 13 books by Henry Cloud and they are all almost at that level. I appreciate you mentioning that one. Game changing. Yeah. That's great. Um, Are there any recent or upcoming books that you know of or recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah, you know, I've been I've been flipping through this the new Tim Ferriss book, Tools for Titan. Mm, mm-hmm. It's kind of great. <laughs> it is very different from his other books, which tend to be, you know, he is very much one of the personalities that has captured a big mind share from the transformational consumer. So I definitely keep up with his books. But they tend to be about how to like cook better, eat better whatever. These books, it's just a series of like one and two page interviews with people who are great at either their business or, you know, at an art, you know, writers and just people who've created and built in great thing. And he's, Tim is a skillful interviewer of these people to pull out like really just little insightful snippets. It's also really digestible. Like you can read a, a few pages and take something away and really do something with it. So I like that book a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard a lot about that one. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Well, they I would love to see them over at transformationalconsumer.com. So that's where a lot of the bonus materials from the book live. It's also where, you know, my sort of consulting firm and, and workshops and trainings and stuff live. So th- that's where you can go to get the book. It's also on Amazon. Then I do a bunch of like, I just call them cr- curating and crafting growth experiences for leaders on my personal blog. So if you just click the blog button on that site or go to taranicole.com, I have like free 30-day writing challenges that I run a few times a year for leaders and marketers and produce a few retreats and other programs there that people really find to be impactful on their careers. So I'd love to see people at either of those places. Well, we will try to send as many as we can there. We're going to have links to all that at your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And we'll also include, just in case people don't see it on your site, the self-assessment link from your publisher, which you mentioned in your book. It, it looked very interesting, and I'm going to take it too. Awesome. Okay. So the name of the book Thanks is so The Transformational Consumer, Fuel a Lifelong Love Affair with Your Customers by Helping Them Get Healthier, Wealthier, and Wiser. The author is Tara Nicole Nelson. Tara, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much, Douglas. And that closes the book on episode 119 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. That's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if your next event needs some inspiration and entertainment, I'd be happy to present to your group key insights 
from over 100 marketing and sales books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. To contact me, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, Marketing Book. I look forward to hearing from you. And please join us next time as we welcome John Hall to the show to talk about his new book, Top of Mind. Use content to unleash your influence and engage those who matter to you. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.